Um, next Sunday is my installation service. So the DS will be back with us and we'll be officially installing me as your pastor. So I guess now I'm just kind of a, a temporary guy. Um, so if you've got anything to say to the DS, now's your week. No. Um, it, that, uh, that takes place next Sunday morning as a part of our service and excited to have uh, Baba coming with us. It's going to be a great time. Uh, last Sunday, I mentioned that we're going to start reading through scripture together. And I'm still working on a couple of the details with the sign-up for that. Hopefully, I'll have more details ironed out this week. Uh, but that is coming, and hopefully it'll be uh, starting in May. But I've got a couple more details before the sign-up is officially ready. Uh, but hopefully that will be resolved this week. The next thing is that uh, one of the things that our family wants to do is get together with every one of you and get to know you better, more of a one-on-one setting or just families getting together. So we'll have some sign-ups coming for that as well. And we can do a Zoom, we can do it in person, we can do it at our house, we can do it at your house, we can do it here at the church, wherever you want to do it. But we want to get together with each one of you and get to know you and uh, kind of hear your story and what brought you to River Rock and, uh, and understand how we go forward together. So be looking for that as well. And then also for all of our board members, we do have a board meeting this Tuesday at 7 in the Fireside Room. So be planning on that. Well, that's all the announcements that I have. And Lonnie is going to miss that board meeting. He's going to be soaking on the beach. Yeah. 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 I just can't understand why you want the beach when you've got this view. I just don't get it. That's fine. Enjoy yourself. Well, we're excited to be able to worship together. So let's stand as we continue to worship. In Romans 8, 11, in one translation, says, If the Spirit of the One who resurrected Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, then you can be sure that He who raised Him will cast the light of life into your bodies through the life-giving power of the Spirit residing in you. Jesus' power is inside of us. And that's what this next song is about, is declaring that, yes, His name is power, but the only way to walk through life is with that power inside of us and that recognition of His power inside of us. Let's just sing together. You're the only answer to the question. You're the only right among the wrong. You're the only hope among the chaos. You are the voice that calls me on.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. And thank you that each one of us in our the realities of our lives and the brokenness that, that we have all encountered, that you have come to us. You've come to, to offer hope in our brokenness. You've come to offer hope in our pain. You've come to give us a new life, a new start. And that new life and that new start doesn't undo all of the pain and all the brokenness, but you find ways to use it for your glory. Ways that make us just sit back and say, wow, God, how could you do that? Thank you. You don't require us to be perfect. So you say, come to me and let me use you. Father, as we continue our time together this morning, I pray that you would speak to each one of us what we need to hear. May your word come alive. And may we realize and remember that we're a part of the story. things that I have enjoyed doing as a pastor and as a part of my sermon prep is kind of getting out in the middle of nowhere and uh, finding an opportunity to, to be alone with nature, alone with God. And uh, one of the things that I struggled with in my last pastor, honestly, maker, in the city there wasn't as many places that you could go and park and get away. My first pastor, I actually had a farmer with about 1,200 acres, and he said, wherever you can get to, go and have fun, enjoy. And I loved that, and he only had to pull me out with a tractor a couple of times. <laughs> but uh, this this last week on Friday, I was able to take some time and just get out to Three Forks. And it was it was busier than I, I think I wanted it to be, but, but just to get out and, and see the headwaters of the Missouri and, and watch as the water flows, as actually the water kind of fights with each other as the as the Jefferson and, the, and Madison come together, it's kind of a lot interesting to watch that water fight with each other. But it was a peaceful place, and I was able just to kind of come down from all of the, the anxiety and all of the, the adrenaline that our family has been feeling as we try to get settled in and, and just let that peace wash over me. As I was sitting in Three Forks, I was remembering just the significance of this place for Lewis and Clark. It's interesting that, that this place, of all the places that Lewis and Clark visited, this seemed to be the one place that, that Lewis craved the most a conversation with Thomas Jefferson. It's interesting that as you pull into to the park there, there's actually... Thomas Jefferson's words to Lewis of find the navigable water route, the headwaters of the Missouri. But you just, as you read through the Lewis and Clark story, you sense the, the significance of this place on their journey. A part of the significance is that this is the place that Sacagawea told the, the captains that this is where she had been kidnapped by the Nazis that this was the place where she had been ripped from her family and everything that she knew and, and taken somewhere else. It's also the closest that Lewis and Clark come to a recorded disagreement between them. It's amazing to think that these two men, traveling all the way from, from St. Louis to the Oregon coast, 
do not have a written disagreement, and none of the men in their journals record a disagreement between the two captains. This is the closest place that we see a disagreement between the two. And it's, it's actually interesting. Lewis passed away before the journals were public, published, but Clark was the one who actually published them, and, and Clark changed the wording on Lewis's journal as to what took place at Three Forks. Clark had been leading the way. He actually got to Three Forks ahead of Lewis. And he gets there, and his feet are bloody from the prickly pears and from the grasses that have been cutting his feet. And, and he tries to walk in the water, and the rocks cut his feet, and they cut through the moccasins. His feet are bloodied and, and just a mess, infected. Lewis reports that he had a tumor on his foot. It was just so swollen. And when Lewis catches up to Clark at Three Forks, Lewis says, why don't you sit and wait and rest and let me go ahead, try to find the Shoshones. You just hang tight. And Clark insisted, and Lewis originally wrote in his journals that he relented and allowed Clark to go ahead. Clark edited that out and just put that Clark was insistent that he be the one to go on. So this is the closest thing to a disagreement between them on the entire journey. But I get a sense that as Clark went on and as Lewis waited, this desperation that he had to have a conversation with Lewis, or with Jefferson, rather. Now, Lewis grew up in the shadow of Monticello. He grew up across the valley from Thomas Jefferson's home. Jefferson was much older than Lewis and was in the Revolutionary War with Lewis's father, who was killed, not in a battle, but by trying to cross the river at too cold of a time of the year, and he died from, from the illness that he caught. But Jefferson really took Lewis underneath of his wings and kind of discipled him as an American. What does it mean to be an American? Lewis had a great military career, and, and in his military career, he was, he was elevated to the, office, the role of paymaster. So he traveled all across the frontier issuing pay for the soldiers. And that was the reason that he became Thomas Jefferson's personal secretary. Because when Jefferson took over as, the, as president, it was a very contentious transition of power. I think there were 37 ballots of the, um, the Electoral College before they finally consented that Jefferson had won the presidency. And there was a strong contingent in the early days of our nation's history that wanted to split America off and let the Appalachian Mountains be the dividing line between one nation and another. In those days, the vice president was not chosen by the president, but was chosen by the second number of votes. So Aaron Barr won the vice presidency. And so the move in, in, the, in the, the, those who disagreed with Jefferson was that they would follow Barr and make everything west of the Appalachians their country, and everything east of the Appalachians would be Jefferson's. That was what was moving. So 
So Lewis, as paymaster, had been traveling around to all of the military installations, all the military camps, and he knew the political alliances of every officer as he paid them. And so Jefferson, when he finally got to the White House, he said, Lewis, come here, you're gonna be my personal secretary. One of the first things that they did was that they set up a, a list of who Jefferson could trust and who needed to be discharged from the military. But then after that task was done, Lewis lived in the White House with Jefferson. Jefferson was widowed by this point, and Lewis was his number one companion. Every night they would entertain guests, and they would have conversations. And after the guests would go home, Jefferson and Lewis would talk about the American West and what was out there, what was beyond the Mississippi River, what was out there. Jefferson had the best library of anybody in the, on the East Coast of what the American West looked like. It was all wrong, but he had the best library. They said the woolly mammoths still roamed out here. It's buffalo. It's not the woolly mammoth. There's a difference. They believed that, actually they believed that the lost tribes of Israel were on the western plains. That they, they believed, and it's in the historical record, that they were going to find Jewish people. So looking back at Jewish history, there were 12 tribes of, of Israel. At the time of exile, when, when Israel was des destroyed, two of the tribes came back to Israel, ten of them never returned. So Jefferson and Lewis believed that the ten tribes were somewhere in the American West, and they spoke with a Welsh accent. That's what they believed. I, he had the best library. It's all wrong, kind of like the internet. You can believe a third of what you believe, what you read. But Lewis and Jefferson were, were close. And when Jefferson finally said, Lewis, I really want you to be the one to go explore. I want you to be the one to, to tell me what the American West is like. It was because he trusted Lewis. Lewis had been his disciple. But at this point, when, when Lewis and Clark reached Three Forks, Lewis was starting to realize that everything that he and Jefferson had talked about had been wrong. If only he could have one more conversation. It's interesting that the Jefferson River was named here. Kind of that longing on Lewis's behalf to have one more conversation with Jefferson. There's three forks. We don't know which one is the right one to go on. We have not found the Indians. These mountains are bigger than what we expected. Can you make sense of this for us? We sense that desire for that last conversation. There's an interesting comparison that a lot of scholars will make between the Lewis and Clark expedition and when the Apollo astronauts went to the there are two main differences that they say. First of all, they say that the astronauts who went to the moon had seen a picture of where they were going. They had a sense of what this was supposed to look like. They'd seen pictures. And second, they had contact with Houston the entire time. 
it's hard for us to imagine what life would be like to travel this far west with absolutely zero means of connection to what was taking place back in America. As my view was, this beautiful view, but I kept seeing these goofy telephone poles and electric line. And it's like, it'd be a great picture if it weren't for these things. <laughs> and yet they're the means that allow us to stay connected with the rest of our world. reminded me of the story of Jesus and his disciples. As, as Lewis longed for that last conversation with Jefferson to clarify what he should do now, Jesus did not leave his disciples wondering as to what they were going to face and how they were going to face what was going to unfold. I have talked about the, the fact that I believe discipleship has four components a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, living together in covenant community, studying scripture together, and living lives of service to others. The first one, living in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, is probably the most confusing, and yet it's the one that Jesus invested most of his time in his earthly ministry in. And especially the last hours of his life on this earth, he invested in communicating to his disciples exactly what this was going to look like. You have your Bibles open up with, open up with me to John chapter 15, starting with verse 1. The setting for this passage is that, that Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And they've spent time celebrating the Lord's Supper. They've spent time as Jesus prepared them to be his people in a world that was going to go absolutely haywire in the next few next few hours. And Jesus started this evening by washing their feet. He spent time talking with them. He spent time investing with them. John records that he was laying on Jesus' breast. He was comfortable with Jesus that night. And after they had their meal, Jesus said, it's time, let's go. Judas went his way, and Jesus and the, the eleven went another way. And they walked across Jerusalem to a, a garden that was probably pretty well known to them. And as they walked past the temple, gleaming in the moonlight, would have been full moon because it was Passover, the temple building was covered in plated gold. It was absolutely gleaming, shining, and at the top of the temple, Herod had installed a huge golden grapevine. And it ran along the top of the temple with huge golden grapes hanging down from it. And Jesus and his disciples undoubtedly had seen that grapevine as they traversed across Jerusalem. And as they made it to the, the garden. And Jesus used that as a jumping off point to say, let me talk to you about the vine. So he says this. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because the word I have spoken to you 
So remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. You remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. This illustration that the disciples would have fully understood because they lived in an agricultural world was an illustration that spoke to them of, of what it means to, to stay connected to Jesus and the chaos that's getting ready to unfold. Now the crazy things about, about the disciples is they were kind of like us. They heard what Jesus said, but they didn't hear it. They heard Jesus talking about the fact that he was going to be crucified, but they didn't hear it. It didn't make sense. They were thinking power, and Jesus is thinking suffering. They didn't hear what Jesus was saying. But in this moment, as everything is about to break open, Jesus tells his disciples, here's what it means to stay in relationship with me. A very powerful, a very simple illustration, the vine. Now the vine spoke to the disciples partially because the vine was the representation of the nation of Israel. We see this illustration used throughout the Old Testament, that, that Israel was the true vine and God was taking care of his vine. That they were to bear fruit, God's fruit. They were to be his prized possession. That's why it was placed at the top of the temple. But it also made sense because they'd all been around vineyards their entire life. They knew what pruning season was. They knew what it was to see the branches stacked up ready to be burned. And they knew what it was for the branches to stay connected to the vine. What Jesus is saying here, the two key phrases that he uses is remain and love. And now the first of these, remain, is an interesting concept. It's remain as you're going. Well, that doesn't make sense, but it does. Because it's relationship. The vine continues to grow, but it maintains. The branches maintain their connection to the vine as they grow. Because as soon as they disconnect from the vine, the growth is over. But one of the best illustrations that we see, and it's used in both Old and New Testament, is the illustration of marriage and how this remaining is like marriage. And marriage is this, this coming together and staying together through thick and thin, through everything that happens. It's not always easy, but it's that staying together. I've learned a lot about life through marriage. Janelle and I just celebrated, was it 22 years? 
experience. And I've grown a lot as over 22 years. I could not have been a pastor 22 years ago. Uh, it took me a while. It took her a while, should I say. But marriage has been one of those relationships that, that you just have to keep growing together. It's challenging. After 22 years, I know every one of her buttons, and she knows every one of mine. And we work really hard to not push them, but sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes she still picks up my glass and puts it away before I'm finished using it. <laughs> but in this illustration of marriage that Jesus uses, that Paul uses, that it's, this, it's a mystery of, of staying connected, even though you're very different, you're staying connected to one another. You're remaining together, even though everything is chaotic around you. And even though sometimes that chaos is between you, you're staying connected. But, you know, we've all seen marriages without love. We've all witnessed what it looks like for people who stay married and they don't love each other and it's miserable for them and everybody around them. But Jesus is not calling us to that kind of a remaining. He's calling us to a remaining in his love. And that's different. But it's interesting here that when, when Jesus is using the word love, he uses a word that the, the disciples probably would have struggled to understand. There were three main words for love in Jesus' day. The first of which was eros, which was an erotic love. That was, that was the, the husband and wife love. And then there was phileo, which was the, the brotherly love. But neither one of these really depicted what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples. And actually what we see developed in the literature around this time is there's a third word that, that, was, that meant love, but it wasn't well defined. And that word was agape. We know that word today. Agape is kind of the unconditional, all everything love that, that is so amazing. It's that Christian love. But Jesus' disciples would have struggled to understand what that meant. In fact, Paul is the one that communicated to us, defined this word, what it means in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's typically a passage that's used at weddings. That's where I typically read it. But really, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was written to a bunch of people who were fighting with each other and with Paul. And Paul is saying, you're missing the point of what it means to be a Christian and how we treat each other. This is the love that Jesus called us to. It's different from eros. It's different from phileo. It's different from just putting up with somebody. And Paul defined this. And I want us to read 1 Corinthians 13 through the lens of John 15. Remaining in my love. So here's the love that Jesus was speaking. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And here Paul starts to define 
Agape, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away the child, the ways of childhood behind me. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. When Jesus says he wants us to remain in his love, this is what he's talking about. He's not talking about Hollywood's way of describing love, which is you, you feel these sparks or these feelings towards someone until you feel them towards somebody else and then you move on. He's not talking about uh, our way of viewing love, that, that I love my truck or I love my house or I love my, my dog. I say I tolerate the dog. They love the dog. I tolerate the dog. That's not what he's talking about. When Jesus says, remain in my love, he says, remain in my love that keeps no record of wrongs. Remain in my love that, that cares about who you are, that is kind, that is gentle, that is patient. That perfect example of love. Remain in that. Because that's what the vine is. The vine is our connection to that perfect love it says, no matter what you're facing, I'm here with you and you're going to make it. Because it's my strength that's giving you what you need to make it through this moment. I think when we use the term a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we tend to view this more of a transaction than a covenant. We tend to view this as, I do for you and you do for me. And one of the weaknesses, I think, of the church is that we've kind of presented it this way. You've got to be good enough in order to, to receive God's love and God's grace. The very word grace means something different. And grace means you don't have to be good enough. Grace means you don't have to measure up. It means that it's given to you regardless of the fact of whether you deserve it. But love, remaining in Jesus, says that as we walk in this grace, as we walk in this relationship, we're not stuck in the mess, but God makes something beautiful out of us. You know, Janelle and I are not at all the same people that we were 22 years ago. Thankfully. Because the relationship changes. As we walk together, there are a lot of things that, that we both view differently. There are a lot of ways that we do things that are very different. The ways that we've 
were raised and now we figured out how we're going to raise our girls, that's different. But we together have grown in relationship and, and we together have, have become something different than what we were 22 years ago. As we remain in, in Jesus' love, it changes us, it shapes us. We start to see others and the world not through our lens of, of judgment and criticism, but through the lens of Jesus' love. As we look at others, we see them as Jesus sees them. With grace and compassion. Even though our world teaches us to do the criticism and anger and bitterness. But Jesus says, remain in my love. Remain in relationship with me. Let me show you what it means to experience love both as, as a safe place for you to be and to live and to enjoy, but also as a way to live in a relationship with others. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as I see it as a part of discipleship, is not just something that we say a prayer and we're done. It's not a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If I would have asked Janelle 23 years ago, I want you to marry me, but here's what it's going to look like. I'm going to show up once a week and spend at least an hour with you unless something better is going on. You know, like the Colts playing football. And every couple of days I'll think about you. I'll read something about you or I'll, I'll whisper a prayer and kind of think about you. And that's what I want our marriage to look like. She probably would have looked at me then and said, you're absolutely nuts. I thought so, but now I know. Because <laughs> that's not a relationship. But yet somehow in our American way of viewing Christianity, we've, we've kind of brought it down and packaged it like a Happy Meal. Where you get this cheeseburger and a tiny, tiny fry and a couple of apple slices and a drink, and we put it all together for you, and don't forget the toy, because that's the most important part, right? And this isn't in here, but that's the most important part. <laughs> we kind of package Christianity like that. Come and say this prayer, and, and get baptized, and, and, and come to church, and, and pay your tithes, and, and that's what it means to be a Christian. But that's not what Jesus invites us to. Jesus says, come and remain in my love, Live in relationship with me. Day in, day out. We're walking through life together. When you're struggling, look up and cry. Jesus, help me with this. When you're having a rough day, reach out. Grab a hug. Say, Jesus, help me. When you're, when you're angry, take that anger and that pain and that rage to Jesus. And say, Jesus, I'm angry about this. Because that's what a relationship is. You walk through life in a relationship. It's not a happy meal. It's remaining in his love. Now, everything else in discipleship centers on this first concept. You can do good things for others without being a Christian. There's no question. 
people all over America, all over the world do that. They do good things with good motives for people. But if you're not living out of the love of Christ, that well runs dry and eventually you become cynical and you start to hate the people that you've tried to help. You have to feed that with the love of Christ to maintain it. You can be in relationships with people and you can go through tough stuff with people, but it's really easy to get frustrated without the love of Christ that that fills us up and gives us what we need to keep going in those relationships. And you can study scripture. There's a lot of people in America who are extremely knowledgeable about the Bible, but they can be the most hateful and angry people that you would meet. And their whole purpose for studying scripture is to use it to beat somebody over the head and tell them that they're not good enough. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To walk in relationship with Jesus Christ means that we live 1 Corinthians 13 in what we receive from him, but also in what flows out into the fruit that Jesus would talk about if we were to continue reading in John 14. That others experience the love of Jesus as they take of the fruit that we bear as we experience what it means to remain in his love. can't imagine what Lewis would have tried to talk to Jefferson about if they couldn't talk in due course. If I were Jefferson and thinking about, or if I were Lewis and thinking about that journey, I probably would have started with, you will not believe how cold it gets in North Dakota. People live there. I don't know why. They could just go a little bit further south, and it's it's warmer. Or they could go further west, and there's actually beautiful mountains. And I know that there's a beauty to the plains. I get that. But the mountains. I can't imagine how he would describe mosquitoes, because they were already coming after me when I was. The headwaters of sleep. But just that conversation of what do we do now? Which one of these forks? We're, we're, we're not going, these rivers are not going west, they're going south, and what do we do? They just kept going. They eventually made it. This is a miracle in itself. But I'm so thankful that Jesus. When he sent his disciples out, he didn't say, go figure it out and do your best. He said, I'm with you no matter what you're facing. If you're having a struggle and you're at a fork in the road and you don't know which way to go, cry out to me because I'm there. Remain in me and I will give you what you need. Cry out to me because I'm here. He's with us. Jesus does not send us out like Jefferson sent out Lewis and Clark. Jesus travels with us and lives in relationship with us and walks every step, frustrating, exciting, happy, sad. He walks every step with us and invites us to remain in his love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this beautiful illustration of the vine. 
thank you for the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. The opportunity that, that they had to learn what it means to stay connected even when everything is chaotic around them. Thank you for how Paul was able to clarify what this love means. That it's not just a love that says do what feels good in the moment, but it's a love that says I'm with you no matter what. Thank you that you love us with that kind of love, that you offer us that kind of a grace, that no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've made the same stupid mistake, that you're with us and you carry us. God, I pray that you would help us as your people to be reminded of that love and to remain in that love. When things frustrate us, Help us to look up to you and remember your love for us and your grace. When we're frustrated and we don't know which way to go, remind us we just have to ask. And I pray that you will help us all to live closer to you in relationship with you in a way that changes us and it changes the world around us. Not because we're good enough, but because your love is flowing into us and through us. And that's where we find everything that we need as we remain in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with that, you are dismissed. Go and live that love, experience it, but make sure you share it with others. For God bless, God bless you guys.